International students pay significant fees. They pay more fees. They contribute a lot more to the to the economy and to the coffers of universities than um, domestic students do. Um, and my view is that they should have the same rights to welfare support as as domestic students. The government has been consistently prepared to take the money of international students, but not to reciprocate that support wherever it's needed. Staffing. It's all anybody in hospitality is talking about. No one's answering ads, owners are working crazy hours, employees are stretched. And from a diner point of view, I can see the difference. Opening hours are reduced, employees are often harried or obviously inexperienced, some being kind. Menus are shorter. And at the same time, bizarrely, new restaurants keep opening or trying to. This week on Dirty Linen, we're going to examine the huge topic of restaurant staff from many different angles. And today we're talking to an expert on labour markets. Chris Wright is Associate Professor at the University of Sydney Business School. His research focuses on employment relations, that is the regulation and management of work, as well as labour migration. Chris, welcome. Thanks, Danny. Give us an overview of the situation as you see it. Uh, so I guess the hospitality industry for a long time has been beset by um, some big challenges in recruiting and retaining staff. Uh, we see that in a lot of media discussion around this issue. Uh, we see that, um, that migrant workers have become a really important part of the solution for hospitality businesses in uh, addressing their workforce needs. And uh, there's also been some uh, challenges around ensuring that workers, particularly migrant workers, are, are paid appropriately and in accordance with the legal standards. So this is an uh, issue where there's a lot going on. Um, there's seem to be um, some big challenges, um, both in terms of businesses getting the workers that they need and then also workers ensuring that their their conditions are, are protected. Mm. I mean, let's pull back a bit from the immediate crisis and look at the ways that Australia's immigration system has changed over the decades. And I guess, you know, it's it's... Australia's always relied on immigration, but it's never been perfect. And, you know, I suppose you could point to a couple of major instances of discrimination, let's say Pacific Islanders being forced to work in the Queensland cane fields from the 1860s. There's the infamous white Australia policy, which limited Asian migration from Federation uh, until after World War II. Um, but I guess, you know, despite all the things that haven't been great about it, for a lot of migrants that came to Australia, they did seem to be properly welcomed. It did seem more of an inclusive system with clear pathways to permanent residency upon arrival. I mean, when do you think this started to change? Uh, it started to change in the mid to late 1990s. So, you know, I think period, particularly that period from around the early 1970s until the mid-1990s, that was a that was a, a period where, um, you know, looking at all, a lot of the research about um, you know, what constitutes a, a good migration program, particularly from the point of view of nation building, um, the, the Australian uh, migration system between the 70s and the 90s was pretty much a, as good as you could hope for uh, in the sense that um, yeah, that was the period after the White Australia policy was finished. So we'd uh, ended having a discriminatory immigration policy 
there was provision for both people to come through you know, skilled and employment routes and also family routes. Um, and I think critically, the, pe the um, people who coming uh, to Australia on a visa, um, they, were, they, were, they had very easy access to permanent residency. Basically, the system was designed entirely around permanent residency. Uh, and they were receiving the same wages and conditions as, um, as citizens. Um, so I think that was, and also there was a lot of support in terms of settlement um, by the government and by also community organisations. So that helped to build a, a very cohesive and inclusive immigration program. And then from the 1990s, it was a bipartisan initiative. Um, we saw governments, uh, both you know, coalition and Labor, move towards uh, temporary visas, um, first around the um, temporary skill visa, the 457, Originally, it was designed um, for um, executive and professional staff and, and then changed somewhat. Uh, and then we saw some changes to uh, the working holiday visa program, which had been in place since the 70s, but it was really a cultural exchange visa, basically focused primarily on allowing people to have a holiday um, and to work a little bit on the side. But that became much more of a work visa, particularly um to geared towards the labour needs of the horticulture sector. And also some changes around student visas as well, which, yeah, again, had, had been in place since the 50s, uh, since the Colombo plan, but really um, increased in a big way from the 1990s. Um, uh, and students uh, um, had uh, and still do have the right, right to work, albeit a limited right um, uh, to work under, under a student visa. So the 1990s and... And and from then onwards, we see gradual changes to temporary visa programs that make them uh, much more focused on meeting the needs of the of the labour market. Um, but unlike the earlier period, um, temporary visa holders often had their rights restricted compared to permanent permanent migrants and um, permanent residents and citizens. Mm. I mean. I guess they've never had their well, their rights restricted in the sense that they're supposed to be paid less, but they did have their rights restricted in the sense that they weren't, you know, let's say for the sponsored workers, they weren't allowed to move from employer to employer as they wished. And for the students, they weren't allowed to work as many hours as they wanted. They were restricted to 40 hours a fortnight. Are those the kinds of things that you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. So restrictions on mobility for, so for yeah, temporary school visa holders and also for other categories of, of visas. Uh, which which is important, I think, because if someone's uh, your right to be in the country is effectively tied to an employer, um, to their sponsoring employer, that can make them often uh, reluctant to speak up. Um, uh, but but also you know, for, for virtually all categories of temporary visa holders, um, you know, restrictions on their social rights, their access to welfare support, um, which um, you know, could contribute to would often make. Um, People more reliant upon paid work, uh, and and might um, and the instances of people who you know uh, who otherwise may have sought alternative employment but couldn't because they really needed the income. Um, so uh, yeah, I guess um, that's a relevant issue to mention as well. Yeah, I mean we've you know one of the things I suppose that also built up around this. Uh, influx of international students and the restrictions with them is this whole education industry. And I think whenever I start 
thinking and talking about this, you, you realise that there's a whole ecosystem of institutions and regulations that um, people are sort of unwittingly embedded in, um, you know, simply by, you know, getting on a plane and coming to Australia. Yeah, so um, that, yeah, that's right. I mean, so the, the a whole range of things happened uh, changes happened, I should say, to student visas in the late 1990s. And one of the things that the government did, which I think was really positive at the time, was that they smoothed the pathway from student visas to permanent skill visas. So until about 1999, if somebody was studying in Australia and they wanted to then transition to a skilled visa, um, they had to first go a return to their home country and then reapply. And that was um, that was eliminated that that barrier, um, and you know the government at the time recognised that you know, uh, student visa holders have been in Australia for several years, and if they want to continue to you know, live and contribute to the workforce, they should be given the right to do so in a very easy way, in a much easier way. Um, so um, that that's an important change, but some of those it's become harder from what I understand. It's become harder for students to to get access to permanent residency um, after they complete their studies. Yeah. So, I mean, as I understand it, once students graduate, they can go into a graduate visa for two years and they can work with uh, uh, with unlimited hours in their field of study or qualification. So there are a lot of people in hospitality on those visas. But yeah, then I think the pathway from graduate to permanent residency can be pretty tricky, rocky, long and expensive. Um, so yeah, I guess there is a pathway, but it's not a, a clear pathway. And I suppose a lot of people would say philosophically, why should there be a pathway? You know, people have chosen to come here to study. Um, you know, we've they've they've studied, and then off they go. Well, they they might go to a, an to another country who's going to uh, to capitalise, to put it very crudely, on 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 their investment in in their education and skills. So. I mean, I think it's a it's a bit of a waste from Australia's perspective if somebody's been accepted here to study and then that person wants to continues wants to continue contributing um, yeah, on a, a as a uh, as a member of the workforce or as a member of society or you know um, as a member of the Australian population uh, and then they then it's made hard for them. I think that that's that's a that's doesn't really make any sense um, from a range of perspectives. So I mean, I. I think uh, you know my, I'm a strong um, advocate of a big Australia. Of uh, you know, one of the perhaps the defining feature of of uh, of post-invasion Australia is that uh, that we're a nation of immigrants um, and that we're a workforce of immigrants, and that uh, uh, we should be doing everything we can to make the most of that. So um, uh, yeah, I think those path. I mean, I, I generally think that you know, the permanent residency program. Um, is the best system um, because it, it's the most inclusive system. Um, uh, it, the, the, many of those uh, inequalities around you know, social rights and barriers to mobility um, in the workforce don't exist. But you know, where but temporary visas have a role, and um, but where they do have a role, I think that there should be a clear pathway to permanent residency for people who want it. Mm. Well, I mean, like personally, I've celebrated a number of people get, getting. Um, 
onto that pathway or even getting permanent residency over the past 18 months when it's they've been in such a perilous situation. So I think, you know, I guess, you know, on a macro level, there are lots of other conversations we could have about, you know, what, what <laughs> a supportable population and about the environmental considerations that need to be um, brought to bear on that whole conversation. But let's not make the conversation <laughs> too enormous right now. Um, but so, Chris, the reason that I reached out to you particularly now is because, is because the, of the rule change around international students and their work rights in relation to the number of hours that they're allowed to work. So um, until recently, students uh, who were working in hospitality, international students were only allowed to work 40 hours a fortnight. That restriction has now been lifted. Um, so on the face of it, at the, at the urging of um, industry groups that have pointed out that there's a massive shortfall in staffing and that, that this would go some way to easing that. Now, your article in the um, Sydney Morning Herald and the Age, I'll just read a little quote from it. You said this. It effectively offers international students up as sacrificial lambs to these employers renowned for exploitation. Um, and then again, you said, and then a bit later on, you said business claims of labour shortage are met by government unquestionably increasing the supply of vulnerable temporary migrant labour. Now, I, I thought this was so interesting and I get that perspective. But for me, it's like when I saw that rule change, I was like, yay, students can piss off those exploitative cash jobs that they've been forced into because actually you can't live on 20 hours a week and they can go to um, businesses that are paying them award wages um, and work as much as they need to to, um, you know, put food on the table and pay their rent. Yeah, I hope you're right. And I think, uh, you know, one thing that um, we, we touch upon in the article but probably uh, should have uh, acknowledged further is that that 40 hours a fortnight rule was uh, a potential or an actual source of vulnerability. Um, you know, it was an issue in the 7-Eleven case from a few years ago uh, where um, uh, and in other cases of where um, uh, uh, international students who had exceeded their 40-hour limit, um, that, that had been held over them by their employers uh, and, and used as a kind of essentially a threat to prevent them from reporting their employers. Um, so in that sense, the lifting the 40-hour limit is a good thing. Um, I guess the re so let me now sort of uh, talk about the reasons why we wrote the article and um, and came to the arguments that we did, ultimately saying that we didn't think it was a good decision. Um, the a key a key one for us. So I mean, as you mentioned, I do a lot of research around employment relations um, in addition to work on on um, migrant workers, and uh, you know one of the key problems in terms of labour market over the past few years has been the rise in the number of cases of people being underpaid. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the hospitality industry is a, um, has been the site of some of this underpayment. So uh, my co-author in that piece, Stephen Clibborne, did a survey a few years ago where he found that uh, around 60% of international students living in Sydney were being paid below the minimum wage, and that figure was 80%. Uh, in restaurants. And there was another study done by some colleagues at um, UTS and uh, University of New South Wales, uh, Laurie Bergen, Bettina Farben-Bloom, who found something very similar, that uh, that around 71% of, um, uh, of students or, uh, sorry, temporary visa holders um, were being paid, in sorry, in food services were being paid um, below $15 an hour. And this is a few years ago, so that it was a time when the minimum wage was around $17 an hour. So that was still quite a large portion of people being paid 
below what they were legally entitled to. So the, a key a key issue is the lack of enforcement of essentially the, those legal minimum standards. In, and I'm saying it's all parts of hospitality or all parts of the labour market, but it seems there are certainly some businesses who aren't complying, and um, and that that's uh, that's resulting in in some pretty serious exploitation. So that that's one concern. Um, and the other is that um, I mean, on the face of it, the 40-hour limit, yeah, lifting it is is a a good thing because it does remove that source of vulnerability. But I mean, looking at what the purpose of that visa is, it is it is a study visa, and um, so it and a condition of that visa is that students are enrolled in full time study. And Alan Fells, uh, who used to be um, head of the Australian um, Consumer and Competition Commission, he was asked by the government a few years ago to lead a task force to investigate. Um, some of the problems around temporary migrant workers being exploited, and he and the task force did consider uh, whether to to lift this or whether to propose to the government to lift this restriction. Restriction, um, and and indeed, it did receive evidence that you know, employers had been coercing students to work beyond their that forty hours a fortnight to, in order to discourage them from reporting underpayment, but ultimately decided not to because of various things, essentially because of um, the importance of maintaining the focus of that visa on its primary purpose to allow students to study. And there was also evidence that it, um, that it mentioned in its report that um, students who worked more than 40 hours per fortnight were more likely to, to fail their coursework and, and not fulfil that primary purpose. So, yes, students need to work. I fully understand that. Um, but really, for the purposes of this visa, work is a, is a secondary purpose. And, and I think that, um, that for, for that visa, that needs to maintain the focus. Um, so that, that's essentially what led us to conclude that it, that it wasn't a particularly, on balance, that it wasn't a, a policy that we thought was a, the right one. Yeah, I, I think it's... I understand that perspective and, you know, I don't question the research. Uh, however, it's quite an idealistic point of view because, I mean, some students come with family money, many don't. Some students that were here and did have family support before the pandemic you know, have families that weren't able to sustain that during the pandemic, whether it's, you know, a Turkish student who's, you know, family back home, their currency has been devalued, you know, 10 times, you know, whatever it is, their money's not worth as much as it was, whatever, you know, whatever the particular scenario is, but there's a lot of people in that situation. Um, so I suppose it's saying we want rich students to come here. We don't want to have people who are looking to break the cycle of poverty um, perhaps or um, you know, be the first person in their um, family to go to university, first person in their family to travel overseas. You know, I think you cut yourself off from a lot of those people. And the people that do come here needing to support themselves, the fact is that they actually, I mean, it would be a pretty rare person in Australia that could support themselves um, on 20 hours work a week. I mean, there would only be a few people who could, let's say, get an hourly rate that would be enough to sustain um, sustain them on just 20 hours. So the fact is that um, they go into the black economy where they are more likely to be exploited. 
Um, so, yeah, I can see the thinking, but I just think in the real world, uh, these people who are who do come here as, as adults and who need to be able to manage their workload, um, yeah, I don't know. It, there's just, yeah, it's not a there's not a very good, clear legal pathway for them. No, sure. And I, I, like, I completely support and agree with, with what you say. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's international students need to be able to support themselves and, and work needs to be part of that. But uh, I mean, I, I think that I I would suggest some different solutions to that end. I think the first thing is that there's got to be better enforcement of, of minimum standards so that if somebody you know, works um, their 20 hours a week, they're going to get paid as they're entitled to, which those surveys I mentioned before indicate is not happening for most students working. Um, uh, so uh, not working, yeah, especially in hospitality, but also in other industries as well. And the other thing is I think that uh, you know, international students pay significant fees. They pay more fees. They contribute a lot more to the to the economy uh, um, and to the coffers of universities than um, domestic students do. Um, and my view is that they should have the same rights to welfare support as as domestic students. They should have you know, rights to income support. They should certainly have had rights to um, unemployment support um, uh, and, and job seeker and job keeper. Um, so the, the government has been consistently prepared to take the money of international students but not to reciprocate that support where, where it's needed. And, and I think that is a, that is a better way uh, of ensuring that students coming here do have the necessary support financially to enable them to complete their studies and to, and, and to, and to support themselves. Yeah, look, I really agree with all of that. And I would add to that Medicare. They should absolutely be entitled to Medicare support. Um, it's just the, the situations that some of those people are in, it's really, really sad. Um, just like one example, you know, a girl that I know who's being chased by from a, by a pathology lab for an $80 blood test, um, which, you know, for the rest of us would just go on to Medicare. And you just think that just that simple thing, you know, that $80 that is – chasing her and it brings so much stress to a vulnerable person so that's just one tiny little example but you know Chris I'm sorry to say and I'm sure I'm not bringing you this bad news that in the recent budget migrants were given a four-year waiting period to access um, any income support post permanent residency Um, so I don't think the government is um, ideologically lining up next to you here. Yeah I've been saying yeah, increasingly loudly over the past few years that, uh, that there needs to be some major changes to um, to ensure greater equality between um, uh, people who come here from abroad and people who are here as, as citizens. Uh, and and, and yeah, generally that the, the, those arguments have been made with respect to temporary visas. But now we're starting to see these inequalities creep in in terms of permanent residency. And it is so short-sighted. I mean, it is... It, it is motivated, it seems, simply by um, wanting to offset some of the spending that is the government's committing to um, in other areas. Um, but it means that you know that people who are coming here, who are making the decision to to build a life here as a permanent resident, uh, are not going to have access to the same 
support, not just in terms of welfare, but also things like um, you know having subsidised childcare. I mean, childcare is incredibly expensive in Australia, uh, but it's and uh, and it's it's expensive even for people with who have have it subsidised by the government. But it's uh, you know I know I have friends and colleagues who are on you know, temporary school visas and uh, and other temporary visas, and um, you know that that makes such a difference that subsidy and not having that makes. You know, makes it a lot more difficult for them. You know, in some states, uh, the um, state governments uh, withdraw the subsidies for people, uh, uh, temporary visa holders, and now perhaps even permanent residency um, visa holders um, who send their kids to public schools. Um, so they have to provide additional payments. Um, and it, it is creating inequalities that, you know, that I think... Are, are, Firstly, they're unfair, but secondly, they, they, they send a signal to people that, well, you know, we're not prepared to reciprocate um, the, the trust and the commitment that you're making to the country. And I think that um, that really undermines the ethos of you know, Australia as a, as a nation of immigrants. So they're really regrettable decisions and, um, and yeah, uh, uh, hope, hope that uh, the government... Um, um, reconsiders them, although I'm, I'm not optimistic about that. Uh, it's just, I, I, I mean, look, I agree with you. I think it's, you know, it, it, they are looking for financial savings, but you can only um, make those decisions based on ideology. And the ideology is that, you know, we're us and you're them and you still are them and you're not one of us. And, you know, the, sorry, um, I'm just pulling away the welcome mat. Come here, build a life, spend your money, pay some taxes, but you're not really one of us. And it's just not the Australia that, that I want to live in. Um but anyway, okay, Chris, let's just slightly change tack. One of the things that employers say um, is that Australians don't want to do these jobs in hospitality. Um, the Australians just don't want to work in restaurants, in kitchens. Why is that? Uh, okay, so um, I mean, I think it comes down to that if we look at the uh, working conditions in other industries, that hospitality the conditions are pretty tough. Um, so, and uh, yeah, this is kind of seen across a whole range of measures. So, you know, the, the pay, the average weekly pay for hospitality, is you know well below the the average weekly pay. It's it's the it's the lowest of all the industries that um, that uh, that the Australian Bureau of Statistics uh, reports on. Um, also. Uh, there's a high proportion of employees in in hospitality who are employed as casual. They're around 65% compared to around 25% of of employees across the workforce. Um, and I, and that's important because you know if you're if people are employed as casual, they're less likely to receive things like training. They're less likely to perhaps um, uh, seek a career in the industry and and perhaps you know, commit to their their employer. Uh, so. I guess in in also parts of hospitality, I'm sure you know much better than I am that the hours are very long, you know, the work patterns are really intense. Um, so, the, the perhaps some, look, I'm, I don't necessarily doubt that that some people working in the industry that that for employers and managers that they do get frustrated, perhaps like employers in any industry do, perhaps um, with with their staff. But I think in some ways it is a bit of an easy thing for uh, employers to say that the reason they have these problems 
attracting and retaining staff is is because you know, people are lazy or because they've got poor work ethic. I think that looking as objectively as possible, uh, that you know, wages are low, um, working arrangements are insecure, um, and there's just not as much protection for workers in this industry as there are in other industries. Can you see any practical changes that might help this situation? Yeah, I think that, you know, that there's things that maybe individual businesses can do and there are things that the industry as a whole can do. So um, the uh, in terms of what, you know, businesses can do, I think that thinking about how, and I'm, I'm, I'm no doubt, actually, I know that there are plenty of businesses out there who do these things. So it's not, um, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be too blanket in, in my comments, but um, that, you know, that we published a paper a few well, earlier this year on the restaurant industry um, with some colleagues here at, at, at the University of Sydney, um, looking at some of the uh, you know, mid, middle to high end restaurants. And it was an industry that people were very passionate um, you know, working in and, and the people, the staff were very excited to be working in those restaurants. But they often got to a point in their lives often, you know, when um, their commitments outside of work um, intensified, perhaps around the time they had families, where they just found it very difficult to manage those responsibilities outside of work with um, some of the work structures, like the, the long shifts, um, the, um, the often the, the intensity of work. Um, so one, one thing could be to you know, ensure that you know, maybe redesigning rosters to allow um, you know, shorter shifts perhaps or um, you know, I guess ensuring staff are paid properly is, is a key one. Um, also, you know, um, having you know, good pathways in place for training. Uh, one of the things that's happened in, uh, in over the past decade or so is it's been a really sharp decline in the number of um, apprentices and trainees in the food trades. So around 10 years ago, there's about just under 20,000 people uh, who are um, undergoing food trades training, and that's declined by uh, almost half or by about a th- or over a third at least to around 12,000. So, uh, I mean, th- that's really critical for the ability of, of businesses to be able to address their labour needs, having, having workers who are trained. Um, so improving some of that, some of the issues around the training system, I think, could also really help. Yeah, and I guess there was a little bit in the budget around training, which some hospitality operators could look at as, as useful, but it doesn't address the immediate situation. But I suppose, you know, short-term thinking, <laughs> I suppose short-term thinking works pretty well for a while, especially when there's not a pandemic and you can keep propping up an industry by bringing people in from overseas. But I suppose in so many ways this pandemic has exposed the fault lines and issues um, that we've got in our society and, yeah, this is just one of them. Well, I guess no one really saw this coming and that, uh, you know, this is one of those things uh, and hospitality isn't the only industry that's been affected by this. I mean, you know, I work for a university uh, universities in a very similar situation in terms of uh, relying upon um, you know, both staff and and students from abroad. Um, to so, yeah, I, I think it's just one of those things that's happened. And um, but you know, one thing I've, I've been doing some interviews over the past uh, couple of years, or since well, the past eighteen months, um, with um, 
with uh, people in hospitality and uh, including you know, employers and uh, industry uh, representatives. And one of the things that was reported to me was that, uh, again, I'm sure this is not something, I'm not telling you anything new here, Danny, but um, that in around 2017, 2018, when the, the government at the time overhauled the old 457 visa and replaced it with a new visa, uh, and under those changes, it became very difficult for almost impossible for uh, cooks coming to Australia to transition from a temporary visa to a permanent visa. And it sounds like that's create, that created major challenges for the industry uh, and it, it really made it hard to attract people here if, they, if there wasn't that um, potential promise of a pathway to permanent residency. And so I, I had heard some things about um, practices that businesses were putting in place to try to uh, attract more people uh, into the industry and to keep them um, through more training, through uh, uh, more flexible working arrangements in terms of uh, hours that you know, weren't so long and demanding perhaps. Um, I mean, the, the pay issue, the pay, I mean, of course, pay is not everything. And you know, enthusiasm for the work is, is, a, is a big issue that attracts you know, certainly me and, and, and you know, pretty much everyone I know to, to their particular lines of work. But it has been striking that, uh, you know, hospitality, that if we look at, you know, there's a conversation that's been happening in Australia around the low rate of wages growth in recent years. And, you know, just this morning I was looking at at, at some of the trends in recent years and and the, the low wage growth has been really, has, has been especially low in, in hospitality. And, and I think that's something that, um, I mean, it's, pay isn't the only solution to getting more people into the industry and keeping them, but I think it is part of the solution. Um, so one of the things that uh, can drive pay up is by having an, a collectively bargained enterprise agreement with staff. Um, and that's something that I think could be used more widely in, in hospitality. Um, you know, businesses sitting down with their workforces and, and looking at ways to organise work better and to create the conditions that are going to um, going to keep people in the industry and in, in businesses once they're there. Um, it's a, that's, that's a practice that's been used in other industries and other countries that's proven pretty effectively for, uh, for keeping staff committed uh, and attracting them into, into, into businesses. It's a tricky one when you're looking at a temporary workforce, though, isn't it? Um, it's people that are residents in a country are much more likely to feel like they've got a stake in it, know their rights, um, and you know, consider organising um, and fighting for better pay and conditions collectively. Um, it's it's hard to imagine a student who feels like they're just going to be here for two years and they're a bit disposable and Australia really just wants them for their fees um, to then look at, you know, changing the labour market. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're right. And, and I mean, that it's a, it's an idealistic solution, but you know, it, it was, a, it was part of this, it was part of the solution, the package of solutions that existed in that period from the seventies until the nineties you know, when, um, when, you know, when, when we had an immigration system that was, very inclusive, but also a, a, a system of of employment regulation that was also very inclusive, um, and uh, and and I think that those solutions aren't aren't um, you know, they're still relevant today. They're, they're not things of the past, and they are 
Um, I mean, so looking you know, just this week in New Zealand, the government there has um, has mandated a shift back towards industry-wide bargaining agreements precisely to try to, uh, as a way of addressing um, employers' staffing needs, also increasing productivity in businesses because um, you know, there's a, a whole body of research indicating if people are included and are and do feel like they're, they're being treated properly at work, then they're more likely to be happy and satisfied and they're more likely to be productive. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're solutions that are being used in other parts of the world and I think that, that they're relevant to Australia. Um, they might not resonate much under this government, but that's not to say that there won't be you know, future ministers or future governments that, uh, that aren't open to these ideas. Absolutely. And I think, you know, another piece of that puzzle has to be prices, like how much diners are willing to pay for food. Um, And I think that downward pressure um, that, you know, I think students become unwittingly become part of this ecosystem of working in cheap restaurants for no money and serving cheap food to people who then think that's how much food should cost. So I think I suppose that's one of those uh, you know, if you just start joining all the dots and you start to see, um, yeah, all these different way, all these different elements that are problematic. But I think that, I think when you, I, I just have, I'm sitting on my shoulder, a restaurant owner who's listening to this conversation and screaming, I can't charge more for my food. <laughs> and, you know, so that is definitely part of it. And it's on all of us, I suppose, if we want to live in a society that's more equitable, you know, everybody's got to come to the table and realise that uh, you can't just kick the can down the road. It, it has an impact at some point. No, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And uh, yeah, we, we um, there needs to be a great understanding of, of, of the value and the of, of, of what we're eating and uh, ensuring that yeah, people are prepared to pay um, according to that value. And um, you know, I, I know that you know, I know many restaurant owners aren't, who are wonderful people. And uh, um, you know, I remember a few years ago um, talking about some of my research uh, about the hospitality industry and, and uh, a friend of mine who owns you know, a restaurant in my in my local area. You know, saying, look, you know, it's you know, I I want to be able to to pay staff better, and I, I I do what I can, but it's so hard because you know I fully realise that uh, it it's an incredibly difficult industry to 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 make ends meet in as a as a business owner. So I think that that means that consumers absolutely need to uh, play a more responsible role um, in ensuring that um, that yeah that they are. Um, are, are willing to pay uh, um, to ensure that you know businesses are supported and that and that staff are supported too. Well, Chris, we are all implicated. We all love eating out, and some of us are, are those people who bring us those beautiful restaurant experiences. Um, this has been a really great conversation. I'm so grateful to you for your time and all the insights that you bring as, as a result of the great work that you do in this area. Thank you so much for coming along and having a chat on Dirty Linen today. Anytime, Danny. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I'm really thrilled to have had this conversation with you. So thanks. Thank you. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. 
We can't wait to hear from you. This is...